All right, we have the uh, opportunity to uh, get back into our series on the book of Esther. So if you have a Bible or device, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Esther. We're at Esther chapter 5, so that really places us right in the middle of this uh, of this. Uh, I find it's a fascinating series because it's a fascinating book. It's a fascinating story. And as I oftentimes say to people, um, the story just kind of carries itself and in terms of uh, engaging our interests. Now, if you've been following this series over the uh, past number of weeks, you know that um, the people of God are not in their homeland. They're in the land of Persia. And at this point in the story, they are facing annihilation. They are facing extinction at the hand of a man named Haman who represents historically the enemies of God's people. And so this is not a good situation for the people of God, for the, for the Jewish people. And this has this, this uh, decree of extermination, which received the stamp of approval of a king named Ahasuerus, affects not only the Jewish people as a whole, but a man named Mordecai, who is also a Jew, who happens to be the cousin of another Jew whose name is Esther. Esther is the queen, actually, of King Ahasuerus. So we have a Jew who is married to and is queen of a Persian king. And this is the greatest empire in the world at this point. This Persian empire extends over a great many miles all the way from, from India, all the way into northern Africa, into Ethiopia. So this is a vast, vast, very powerful empire. Well, at any rate, the situation is so dire that Mordecai now, just giving a bit of a quick background, Mordecai goes to his, his cousin Esther, who is the queen, and he says to Esther, what you need to do is you need to go before the king and make an appeal to the king as queen to have him rescind or reverse this decision to exterminate the Jewish people. And Esther says this, although she kind of wrangles with her cousin for a while whether or not she should really do this, but it's Esther who finally says this to Mordecai, okay, but you need to understand that if I go before the king, there is a law in the books that says that if I go into the presence of the king unannounced and he does not extend to me his golden scepter, I can very well be put to death. So this is a life and death matter, not only for the Jews or Mordecai, but also for Esther. So now, as we get to chapter 5, the question is this. When Esther goes before that king, is she going to live or is she going to die? All right. Chapter 5, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and hailed out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to half my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king... Let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. 
And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions to which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Hmm. So, so things, things are not looking exactly well for Mordecai. Last thing we read here is the gallows being made upon which he may be hung. You know, it's rather interesting, and I don't know if you've noticed this as we have gone through this series together, but, um, you know, I think I may have stated this before, but I'll state it again. In, in the original language, in the Hebrew language, if you look at the Hebrew text, there's, there's no such thing as chapters or verses. Those are editorial insertions that kind of break up the story for us. So when you think of the book of Esther, think of like those, those books as parents that you read to your kids when they're really young, right? And they're usually kind of short stories. But when you read those books, you typically don't find chapters and verses, right? You just, you just read the story from beginning to end. And that's how the Jewish people would do it. When they would read the book of Esther, they would just treat it as a story. And they would read it from beginning to end. But for our purposes, these editorial insertions are important because they help break up the story for us. And they helped me as a pastor to preach, so we say, okay, we're not going to obviously follow the whole story in one sermon, but we're going to break it up so we can kind of get deep into it and chew on it and understand really what's going on in us. Now, when you, when you take a look, and the reason why I bring the chapters and verses to play here is that when you take a look at uh, the various chapters in the story leading up to this point where we're at this Sunday, it's kind of interesting that, that each chapter ends on somewhat of a dark note. Okay, so for instance, at the end of chapter 2, we read how two men are hanged on a gallows. At uh, the end of chapter 3, we read how the city of Susa, the capital of Persia, is thrown into confusion. Remember that? Because this plan was to exterminate the Jews, and the king signed off on that. People heard about that, and they were all worried. They were full of anxiety. So at the end of chapter 3, the whole capital is thrown into confusion. At the end of chapter 4, es uh, Esther is encouraged to go before the king. And Esther seems resigned to the fact that if she does that, she could very well die. And what does she say to Mordecai? If I go before the king, well, I guess if I die, I die. Then at the end of chapter 4, 
right? Or in the chapter 5, what we find is we have Mordecai. Now a gallows is built, and he very may well be hanged the next day. So you see all the darkness. But here's the thing. In the midst of the, the darkness at the end of each chapter, we find one individual who is like a ray of sunshine that pierces through dark clouds. And it's actually a woman. A woman who is bold, a woman who is brainy, a woman who is beautiful, and also a woman who is very savvy and strategic. And who is that? Well, guess what? It's Esther. So now we come in the story, and Esther has to come before the king. Now remember, we left off where she said to Mordecai, I'll go before the king, but I can't guarantee that I'm going to live or I'm going to die. Because no one, according to the laws and the books, comes before the king unannounced. And if they do that, they could very well die. So when a person comes unannounced before the king, if the king does this, holds out the golden scepter, that person will live. And the king goes like this, withholds the gold scepter, that person will die. So what's going to happen to Esther? So that's how the story begins. But here's the thing. As you move on in the story, in, uh, in verse 2, we read, And when the king saw Queen Esther standing on the court, right, the drum beat is rolling, what does it say? She won favor in his sight. Now, you look at the story, and there's, there's not a lot of build-up to it. It's just kind of stated matter-of-factly in a rather undramatic fashion. But what is happening here is huge. If Esther dies, it's very likely the Jews die. But Esther does not die. The passage says she, wants, she wins favor in the, the sight of the king. Now, you read a story like this, and you can't help. If you take the story, story seriously, you can't help... But, but ask yourself questions that come through in this story, okay? Like, why is it actually that King Ahasuerus actually had favor in his heart and looked favorably upon Queen Esther? Why is that? And I think a lot of people would say this, especially if they don't come to the story from what we call a spiritual, theological, Christian perspective. They would simply say, well, you know what? Uh, Queen Esther simply, simply had it good that day. That it was, just kind of a, it was just kind of a coincidence that the king happened to be in a good mood that day. Because remember what I said a couple weeks ago, that historians will tell us, as they look at the life of King Ahasuerus, that what they see is a lot of ups and downs with King Ahasuerus. He's a rather moody individual. And sometimes he would wake up on the right side of the bed and sometimes on the wrong side of the bed. So you never knew what kind of reaction you were going to get from King Ahasuerus. So that's what happened here. But the child of God, when they read the story and they take it seriously and they look at what the king did and his reaction to Esther in light of the book as a whole, what they see is this, right? Throughout the story, we see this. We'll continue to see this. We see the hand of God at work. And the great irony of this book is this. That all through this book, the name of God, as I noted before, a number of you know this, but in case you're here this morning you don't know this, the name of God is just never mentioned in this book. Never once. And yet what we see is we see this constantly. We see the hand of God. We see the fingerprints of God everywhere. And what does the Bible say? 
God orchestrates all things, including the heart of the king at this moment. What does the book of Proverbs say? It says that, that the king's heart is like water in the palm of God's hand, and he directs it where he will. So if God wants that puddle of water in his palm to go this way, it goes this way. And if it goes this way, it goes this way. If he wants it to go through his fingers, that's fine. But the king's heart is in the hand of God. What do we call that? We call it the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. That's a theological term, and we'll follow up on that term next week. But my friends, we don't serve God, and we don't live in a world that is governed by fate or chance. But all things, though it may not seem that way for sometimes for us, but all things are governed by the hand of God. We'll pick up on that theme next week, all right? But meanwhile, Esther goes before the king. She finds favor in the eyes of the king. Now, here's the thing we need to understand. That the king not only has a favorable disposition and attitude toward Esther, but he shows a great amount of, well, let's call it generosity. So, so Esther comes before him, and the king says, Esther, what is it that you want? In so many words. He says, what is your request? Because whatever it is, I will give it to you, even up to half my kingdom. Now, I want you to think about that. Because there are many times when we come before God, and if you're a Christian, you know that Hebrews chapter 4 talks about God's throne is a throne of grace. And as his children, we always have access to that throne. Have you ever had this? Where you come before your God in the name of Jesus, knowing that you're accepted by him. And you know that God listens to your prayer. You bring this, this request toward him. And we have things that are going on in our own congregation right now. People are dealing with cancer. People are going through difficulties. Um, things that, things that sometimes tear our hearts apart. And have you ever had it where you come to God in prayer, hoping that he answers your prayer, trusting in time and in his way that he'll answer that prayer. And then when he does, he not only answers your prayer, but he gives you something extra. He gives you more. He gives you more than what you asked for. How many times has not that happened for us? Have you ever had that? Right. God, I need, oh God, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching out to you. And then he blesses you beyond measure. Always remember this, the God whom we serve and the God whom we come before in Jesus' name, He's more generous, he's more gracious than we can ever imagine. And oftentimes he gives us more than what we expect. This is what happened with Esther and the earthly king Ahasuerus. So Ahasuerus again says to Esther, what's your request? I'll, I'll, I'll grant it to you even up to half my kingdom. And what's her response? She says this, and it's kind of strange. She says, what I would like is for you and also for Haman, remember, he's the one who hatched the plot to exterminate the Jews. I'd like both of you to come to a feast. And the king says, okay. So he commands Haman to come. Haman and the king come to the feast. They eat that feast. They drink afterwards. And while they're all comfortable, the king once again, because he remembers what Esther asked of him, right? He says, he, or what he, he promised to grant her request. So she she comes before him again in that feast, and then what does the king say at the end of the feast? He says, same thing. Esther, what is your request? I'll, I'll give it to you even up to half my kingdom. And what does Esther say? Again, kind of weird. But she says, what I'd like is if you would just one more time tomorrow, you and Haman, 
Come to the feast that I have prepared. And then I will tell you what I desire. Now, again, throughout, throughout this series, throughout this preaching series, series, I want us to enter into the story. And I want you to really, as you read the story, kind of ask yourself questions. Like, here's a legit question. Why isn't it that when the king said to Esther, even initially, what's your request? I will grant it to you, even up to half my kingdom. Why doesn't she take advantage of King Ahasuerus at that point, figure he's in a good mood and favorable disposition to her and say, King, I have something very important to ask you. You have signed on to a decree to exterminate the Jews. Would you rescind that decision? Would you reverse it? Would you do that? But she doesn't. She doesn't do it the first time. She doesn't do it the second time. She simply says, O King, you and Haman come to this feast. Why does she do that? And I want to suggest to you, as we follow the story along, is that she's setting the stage for something greater. She's kind of, she's kind of stringing the king along. Come on, come on, come on. You see, there's, there's a strategy here. But what's the strategy? Well, you've got to continue on in the story. So she says to the king and Haman, come, come to the feast. Well, they haven't arrived at that feast yet. And Haman is thinking to himself, so what the story does is it leaves King Ahasuerus and it leaves Esther to the side for just a moment and focuses especially on Haman, but also Mordecai. So Haman is invited to the second feast of the king. And meanwhile, he is thinking, uh, this is wonderful. We could say that he is, um, he's very excited about this. He is stoked, as we say today. And why is he stoked? Because he's thinking, the queen asked actually not just the king, but me to come to this feast. She didn't ask anybody else in this huge kingdom. She asked me. And so he's feeling good about himself. Hmm. But then he runs into Mordecai, the king's gate. And Mordecai, once again, when Haman comes into his presence, Mordecai will not do, once again, what's in his heart. And that is, bow down before the king. He will not do that. Why won't he do that? Number one, because he's a Jew. He's a child of God. Although we don't know how committed he is, but he is a Jew. He knows that much. You don't bow to someone other than the Lord your God. And secondly, he will not bow before Haman because Haman is a historical enemy of the people of God. There's all kinds of things wrapped into this. So he, he, Haman comes by, people bow around him, but he just stands there, right? He won't bow. And what is Haman's reaction if you look at the story? Haman is incensed. He's extremely angry. But what does he do? He shuts his lips. He remains quiet. And then what does he do? He goes home, and he goes and meets his wife, and he invites friends over, and he does something that's rather interesting. He doesn't vent to his wife and his friends about Mordecai. What he does is he recalls all these accomplishments of his, something interesting psychologically that's happening here. Take a look, um, if you get your Bibles, your devices, take a look at verse 11. And Haman recounted to them, 
that is Zeresh's wife and his friends. Number one, all his riches, right? The splendor of his riches. So he's a wealthy man. He has a number of sons. He recounts to them all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. He mentions four things right off the bat that revolve around his greatness. And why is he basically doing that? He's basically saying, these are all the things, these are all of my accomplishments, these are all the things that I have. He builds himself up to basically say, and yet, you know what? This Mordecai will not bow down to this greatness. And we read in verse 12, Haman said, or no, verse 13, yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So what do you have? You have a man who is full of himself. He's full of pride. He's full of self-absorption. He's full of self-promotion. He's, he's full of jealousy and anger and revenge and embitterment. And these things you see in the story just consume him. They enslave him. They, they, they gain a foothold in his heart. that actually diminish all his achievements. Do you ever have that where, where you, you kind of, you, you sit quietly to yourself sometime in your home or wherever it is, and you think about all the blessings in your life? You count this and this and this and this, you know, maybe related to yourself or your work or your family or your health or whatever. But all it takes... Is, is that one person or that one conversation, something someone said or something someone did, and that, that embitterment just gets a hold of your heart to the point where all the blessings that you have recounted, and if you're a Christian, you know that they come from the hand of God, right? That they become diminished. In fact, those blessings become sidelined because you're fixated on that one person or the one thing that they said. How easy, how easily that happens to us. Then why do I bring that psychological aspect out? Because this is what is happening to Mordecai. And his wife Zeresh and his friends, they recognize what Mordecai is doing to him. And so what do they say? In so many words, they're saying, why do you keep putting up with this guy Mordecai? The guy's nothing but a hassle. And he diminishes you. And he disrespects you. So why don't you do this? Why don't you build a gallows? Kids, you know what a gallows is? Gallows is a place where people are hung until they die. Sometimes they suffocate. They can't get enough air. And they die. Sometimes their necks are broken or what have you. It's a bad way to die. But they said... Do away with Mordecai by means of a gallows. In fact, why don't you do is you make a very tall gallows. Make it 50 cubits high. It's about 75 feet high. Make it really high. Hang them on that so everybody can see. And the story draws to a close. And the last thing we read is this. They all say, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. 
then you can go joyfully with the king to the feast. This pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. And we're once again left on a dark note, like unless you move forward in the book and start reading the rest of the chapters, you're just left hanging there wondering, is this guy going to live or is he going to die? So it's still dark for the Jews, it's dark for Mordecai, and it's kind of dark for Esther as well. Because we haven't heard from the king, yeah, I'll reverse the decision. So again, we're left hanging. Now what I want to do as we start drawing to a close now here is I want, you, I want, to, I want to leave us with that image of where the chapter ends, and that is the gallows, place of hanging, place of execution. Mordecai, think about this, Mordecai has not been executed yet. So again, we're left hanging. But we know that there is someone that we know very well who has been hung on a gallows, a place of execution. And it's very simply Jesus. Jesus was hung on a gallows called the cross. And for Jesus, this cross, like the gallows, is a place of execution, is a place of death, is a place of suffering and pain, both in body and in soul. It is a place of cursing. Even the Bible says that about the cross of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was accursed on the cross. Why does it say that? It's more than just because our sin is upon him, and therefore he is cursed. But when a person is hung on a cross, when a person is crucified, they are in a place of suspension. Their feet are not hitting the earth, but they're not in heaven either. They're suspended in between, and that's what makes the cross such an accursed, cursed place. By the way, the cross is also a place of mockery. Where Jesus was mocked as he was dying, but also this. Jesus was mocked when he died, and Jesus was mocked after he died. A.V., will you put on that image? I want you to take a look at this. I don't know if you have ever seen this before. This is what we call Roman graffiti. I'm getting at this mockery matter. You see the Latin below? And this is, this is a, many believe that this graffiti that was uh, inscribed upon white plaster of a, someone who looks like he maybe is 10, 11, 12 years old or something like that. And you see a boy there, maybe that's a man, and he's looking up. At a donkey on a cross, many believe, historians believe that may be a reference to Jesus Christ. And what do those words actually say? It says, Alexemenos worships his God. <laughs> worships a donkey. Yeah. See, this is mockery of Christ. Now, why do I show you that? Because many people view Jesus in that way. They see him on the cross, they hear about him, they see that he suffered, they see that he died. But here's the thing. This is not the end of the story. For Jesus died, but the Bible tells us that Jesus rose from the dead, and not more than that, Jesus ascended into heaven, and there he's seated at the right hand of God, full of power and authority and rule, 
where Jesus reigns even today, despite of what goes on here below, where it seems like evil is triumphing day after day after day. Jesus sees all things. Jesus is orchestrating, directing all things as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So it was St. Augustine, the great church father, who described actually the cross of Jesus Christ as the devil's mousetrap. Kids, you ever see a mousetrap? You ever see a mouse in a mousetrap? When I was a kid, we grew up kind of a rickety old house, and our basement was just full of mice. I remember mom would be setting the traps all over the place, and in the morning we'd all check the traps. You know what I mean? Usually it's a mouse in the morning, right? And I remember she would, some people put cheese in a mouse trap, some other people put peanut, my mom always put peanut butter. She found that the mice really liked peanut butter. So, and sure enough, what happens is the mouse comes, kids, the mouse comes to the mouse trap, and thinks that the victory is his. He's going to take that cheese, or he's going to take that peanut butter, run away, and his, his stomach will be full. But what happens? He's tempted by the peanut butter or by the cheese, and all of a sudden the mouse trap, and that's it for the mouse. So it was with the cross of Jesus Christ. For the devil, he thought, oh, yes, Jesus has died, and the victory is mine. But actually, the cross proved to be the devil's mouse trap for Jesus did not just die, but he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And there he rules as the Lord of lords and King of kings. The victory is Christ. Now, why do I bring that out? Because we need to remember that in light of the gallows for Mordecai. Mordecai may be down, but he's not out. And the victory in the end will be his and the people of God's. Now, we haven't gotten to that point yet. But as we follow on the story, that's exactly what we're going to see. So I want to leave you just with this brief thing, and that is this. Once again, when we read this story, what do we find? What we find is that there is this colossal warfare that is going on between two kingdoms and two peoples. We have the war between good and evil. We have the war between right and wrong. We have the, the, the war, the conflict between the people of God and the people of Persia and those who belong to King Ahasuerus. Ultimately, we have this colossal conflict between Jesus and the devil himself. And the question that is constantly raised as we go through this book together and as we constantly find all these dark notes at the end of the chapters the question is this, who indeed is going to win in the end? Now, you have people living in this world who would not call themselves Christians, but they know that there's good and evil in the world. But you can ask them, what do you, what do you think is going to triumph in the end? Is evil going to triumph or is good going to triumph? And the best thing they can say is this, we don't know for sure, but I sure hope good triumphs over evil. The Christian has more confidence than that on the basis of the Bible and the basis of this story. There's one who is enthroned, and he's bringing his kingdom to ultimate completion and victory. And he's orchestrating all things in this world. Are battles lost for the Christian individually and as a people? Yeah, they are. Things get pretty dark. But we know in the end who wins, and that's Jesus. And Jesus says, my kingdom rules over all other kingdoms. And what does Jesus say to us this morning? Draw near to me. Enter my kingdom. Repent. Put away your sin. Embrace me for the forgiveness of your sin, but do more than that. 
bow the head and bend the knee, for I am Lord of lords and the King of kings. Join me, join me in the complete victory of evil one day. Join me in this. May we all join him in that. And may this beautiful truth be ours as we continue to go through this story together. Enough said this morning. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel of Esther. Thank you for the blessing of this place and where we can worship. Thank you, O God, for drawing us by your grace and through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ into your kingdom. And God, we pray that when times are dark, we may remember, we may remember that we are not alone, but we belong to our friend Jesus, our Savior Jesus, and King Jesus. And Lord, we look forward to the day when one day, as the Bible says, death, mourning, crying, pain, all these things will be done away with. And we'll enter into glory into, as we will see this afternoon, the eternal Sabbath rests. What a glorious day that will be, oh God. May we look forward to that, O oh Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.